Vegas now because Vegas at this time here, I think Vegas got the break international before Sean Paul. But he was telling me that there was a situation now with that same Sean Paul and Mr. Vegas song where I I think you guys wanted to put it on his album, but this is where he was going to get X'd out of the deal or something. I'm not sure. Could you explain how your memory, how you remember that to go? <clears throat> I'm sorry. Let me state by saying I have nothing but love for Mr. Vegas. We, his first big hit record I produced and I put mm-hmm. him out there, right? So I, I, and I even spoke to him just the other day. Mm-hmm. And me and Vegas been cool throughout the years. Very happy for his success and very happy to be a part of his journey, especially mm-hmm. giving him that breakout hit on the rhythm so many years ago. When they first did that record, Hot Girl Today, there are some inaccuracies in the stories which I've been hearing. Mm-hmm. which I've addressed at other times and I can address now. There was a music video that still exists. You can go on YouTube for the song Hot Girl Today on the original Street Sweeper rhythm mm-hmm. with Sean and Vegas, right? It's a video that they, they shot with the two of them put their, both their money into it. At that time, a music video wasn't a thing. This is before YouTube was a thing. We had local video channels here on TV, right? Hype TV and RE TV. And we shot a music video. Guys can go look for it. It's like they're riding quad bikes. Mm-hmm. And they're just up in the riding the quad, the, the bike, motocross style. I here. remember it. Mm-hmm. Right, with a whole bunch of riders and stuff. And they did that video, and that was a concept, and we shot it. The two of them pulled their own money into it, and we shot the video, and we put it out. Vegas used to hang around by the studio the same way like those guys used to hang around because he got his big hit out of there. So he used to kind of hang. He wasn't like a member of the Too Hard or the Dutty Cup or whatever, but he was a close associate, if you want to put it that way, because he had come out of that stable. Mm-hmm. They did the song Hot Girl Today. There was a friend of ours that used to come and hang out by the studio, um, who was a pilot, and he, he's still a pilot. And he used to, um, his name is Garth Bennett. And Garth used to enjoy what we we're doing up there and used to cut a lot of jokes and stuff um, when he were up there hanging out at the studio. The skits that were on the Dutty, the first album, the stage one album, the little skits in between mm-hmm. the songs. Garth was like the writer and the mastermind behind a lot of those skits, right? Because a very jovial, fun-loving kind of guy, good-spirited guy. He's the guy that came up with this idea. He came to the studio one day as a joke and said, hey, guys, no, I've decided I'm going to be a dancehall artist. <laughs> and we're like, okay, Garth, what is this now? And he's like, no, man, I have a bad tune, I have a bad tune. And I said, what's mm-hmm. the tune? He's like, la 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 boom boom chalet. I, man, want a hot girl today. Chula, like that, like a joke. So we're all laughing at him like, Garth, like, get the fuck out of here. Like, you're such a clown. You know what I mean? Because he was like, he liked what we're doing, but he's a pilot. He doesn't know. Mm-hmm. So he's just being corny and stupid, bro. Like, Vegas and Sean heard the idea and like, yo, you know, it's actually a fucking good idea. Develop it into a song and went to Seal and Cleave and recorded it. And made it into this record. Garth is a guy that came up with it. Anyway. On love back then, bro. Nobody wasn't really watching anything like who wrote what and who did what. It was just people vibes in and hanging, have, hanging out and having fun. And I said, the man was at pilot flying commercial airlines and he wasn't trying to really be in music. He just liked coming to hang out with us. You know what I mean? Yeah. I love the scene and the studio. So that happens. The song gets big on the street sweeper rhythm. So let's establish that. Mm-hmm. The song was big and... VP Records decided that they wanted to make it more accessible to the New York club scene because I thought that a good chance of being a crossover record. 
So they went back to Steely and Cleaver and said, listen, I know you haven't done the street sweeper with him, which is wicked and it's tearing down Jamaica, but it sounds like a funeral march to us in New York. You know, you know, you know jump, 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 you know what I'm saying? They wanted to put it on a more recognizable beat for the New York club audience. So they told Steel and Cleaver remix a record. So they remix it and put it on the Ponyani rhythm, mm-hmm. which would be a popular dance hall rhythm that would just work everywhere in the world. And when it was happening, you are correct in that Mr. Vegas was ahead of Sean in terms of popularity internationally. Mm-hmm. He was signed to Green Sleeves Records in the UK. Green Sleeves' opinion was that Vegas was a big artist. VP was their competitor. And so they thought like, well, we're not going to help VP get any hit record if we can't benefit from it too as well because Vegas is our artist. Even though Vegas had recorded the song for Steel and Cleavey, they were the producers. They licensed the original version of the song to VP and they did the remix at the request of VP. Mm-hmm. So VP's opinion is like, okay, well, we're dealing with the producers. They own the master, so they must have their relationship with, with, with Vegas or whatever. We're just going to go ahead and proceed. Greensleeves got involved and they said, well, no, technically he's our artist regardless. <laughs> so guess what happened? If you guys want Vegas, you're going to have to pay us 30,000 US dollars to be able for Vegas to be able to participate in the new music video and for Vegas to, 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 to be a part of this new promotion, this new record, <laughs> new version of the record. Okay, me and Sean went to Vegas and said, bro, what's with this $30,000 thing? This is a song that we did together. We already made a music video together, me and you. We spent all money. Jeremy them organized the video. We had to shoot. It was playing on local cable television. It's all love. You're here. It's all camp. It's one link. It's one place. Why is Green Seas behaving like this, bro? There's no budget. Sean wasn't signed to Atlantic. He didn't have any money. This is just VP Records. And VP Records is like $30,000 for one song for the guy up there. 30 grand would be the money that VP would pay and Tad producer for juggling mm. Sheldon to put in context. You, you understand what I'm saying? For 10 opposed songs. To, opposed that, to one song. Exactly. To one song to give to one person. Never in life would they ever spend that kind of money. Mm-hmm. So VP like, yo, we can't afford that. You guys need to talk to Vegas. Me and Sean went and we spoke to Vegas with the same reason. Vegas's attitude at the time, incorrectly or correctly, I'm not trying to dig at Vegas like he did something wrong. Mm-hmm. He sided with his label who he was signed to, which would have been the right thing to do. I'm be like, no, I know my worth and this is what I think my worth is. And if they think it's start to grind, it's start to grind. Mm-hmm. So VP was like, well, we can't, we can't do that. So they made a decision to go ahead and just make the record and make the video without Vegas because he didn't want to participate. And they weren't going to pay $30,000 to Greensleeves, who was their rival. And we were basically saying, like, well, screw this. Who's this Sean Paul guy? It's really Vegas who is a star. And that was their attitude. Mm-hmm. So it proceeded. We made the video without him. And they put out a record without him. And they ran all the promotions without him. He's not signed to them. He had to have no access to Vegas. They're not going to spend money on a budget for Mr. Vegas to fly him up and down to promote the record or do anything. If Green Steves had said, like, they'd pitch in and we'd make this thing happen together and somehow share the master or share the licensing, I guess that would have been a whole thing for them to solve. But Green Sea's attitude was like, we're not lifting a finger. We don't care. Because we're UK-based, bro. They didn't really care about what was happening in New York or in the US. As long as the record was big in the UK. Mm-hmm. You felt what I'm saying? So that sort of trap that happened. Of course, Sean went on 
to do other things and eventually gets signed and eventually blows up. And the revisionist history of the story is that, oh, we screwed up Mr. Vegas and Sean became a big star and Vegas could have become a star and we prevented him and we stopped him and we didn't include him. And that's not the case at all. It's not we, number one. Number two is the labels. Number three, responsibility should have been left at the foot of Steel and Cleave because they were the actual producers of the record. Mm-hmm. You understand what I'm saying? And they did the licensing deal. So they should have been the go-between to be like, yo, talk to Vegas, his management work it out. Let's talk to Greensleeves because they would have a Greensleeves license and a US license. You see what I'm saying? All of that needs to be tied into it. And then number four too, is like, I know who wrote the record. The hook, who came up with it because I was there and was at my studio. So it's also very unfair to state like this thing, like, oh, it, it, it's my record and I took Sean to Steel and Cleave and I put Sean on my record. It's not the case, bro. With all due love and respect, Vegas, I know the record came about. So it's, it was a shared experience across the board and it just unfolded very unfortunately because of stubborn record labels. Not because of artists, bro. Not because of Sean and Jeremy versus Vega. None of that. All that's Mm -hmm. nonsense. They did other records together. They did Tiger Bone. Mm -hmm. They did another record. You understand me? They ended up doing shows together. I spoke to Vegas one day, bro. You can't be up. What Vegas said? They even did the "Here Comes the Boom" with DMX with DMX also for Belly. You know what I mean? What Vegas said to me was, "Yo, listen." Vegas said to me one of his regrets he has in not even in music, in life, is actually disrespecting you over that situation. When uh, I remember one night we were quarreling about the situation at, at um, I think we were at Pegasus uh, Hilton Hotel. And Jeremy Hardin was there. And Jeremy Hardin, um, I don't remember what he said. And I told him about his mother. Yeah. He said something about, we don't need Vegas on the record. Can't take him off or something like that. But I was real upset of the whole situation. And I I think, I don't remember if I told him about his mother or called him a, a, a P word or something. That was not good. Because the man that we had promised really, no matter the circumstances, that man that really made somebody, made the, made the world know. That is something I regret. One of the things I regret in my life. The night when we, when, we, when we said that to Jeremy Harding. Well, I, I appreciate that. And I said, it's always been love for, for, for me and Vegas. And I said, we just spoke to each other last week after like, a, 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 you know, a, a time I'm not speaking. Not like we weren't speaking, but I just really yeah. hadn't heard from him. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And I don't think, I have never personally walked out with any sort of malice towards Vegas for anything which was said or not said. I think I appreciate the fact that how hurt he was about the situation with the song. I think from, from my perspective, though, it's just to relay the message that it, people like to point and say, oh, it's the artists that did it. It's not us that did it. Mm-hmm. It's the record labels that did it. And this was this was pre... Sean was not any big star, it's or major at the time or anything like that, to be honest with you. So it's really like a label issue. Mm-hmm. But you know what I'm saying? But I mean, listen, Vegas was an integral part of the whole development of the two hard record sound at the same time because that record was a monster record. Nike Air, was a street anthem on that rhythm, bro. Beanie Man is the worldwide international smash. Let's not get it twisted. But after the six months and eight months had passed, bro, and people are sick of hearing Beanie Man in Jamaica. You know what I'm saying? The Vegas was the one that was still tearing on the dance, bro. Mm-hmm. The Vegas was a song on the rhythm. So, so it's all love with Vegas, man. I wish him the best. You know what I mean? And Sean has collabed with him before. We still wish each other the best. We all know where we're coming from. You know what I mean? So I appreciate 
and I appreciate um, the fact that he would even say something like that. So big up to Vegas for that, man. Much love. Yeah, man. No, for sure. So even one other person I know you connected with, I'm not sure how early in your career, because this is now going to really expose you to real management, would have been somebody like Robert Livingston. Did you connect with him early or you connected with him later in the Sean Paul journey? So Robert, no, who I see as my biggest mentor in the music management side of things that way. Robert is a man of of, of few words. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not going to sit down like me and give you a two-hour interview. <laughs> but he has very a lot of impact and weight on the things that he does. I spoke to Robert again just mm-hmm. up to a few weeks ago, actually. Um, he, at the time, when, when Sean started to sort of blow up in the commercial space, Robert was one of the first guys. I remember Robert had a, has a big rehearsal hall still on a big yard studio mm-hmm. where most of the people would go to rehearse. So we would be, you know, doing rehearsal time over there a lot as well. So I'd run into Robert on occasion. And Robert was always a person who said to me, listen, this path that you're on with these major labels, let me give you some advice. Let me tell you how they behave. Let me tell you my experience. Let me tell you when you're hot, you're hot and they care. And when you're not, they just drop you like a stone and they don't give a shit. And you know, you have to look out for these, these people and how they think and how they operate and be very wary of the hip hop artists as well, because you think that you and them are friends and you're not friends mm-hmm. and they just want to use you. And as much as they talk about, you know what I'm saying? Reggae and dance and stuff. Trust me, you're a direct competition to them. And like a lot of things he told me about his experience of like in that scene and actually growing up musically in New York, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? With Shaggy and with Supercat and what he experienced. So he passed on a lot of information that, as my journey continued, I kept saying to myself, yeah, that's the same thing Robert told me. Look at that. It's, it's mm-hmm. happening the same exact way. You know what I'm saying? And I think we both came, we both still come from a point, even talking to Robert the other day, where we're different kinds of manager, producer type people. I'm a hands-on musician guy. I'm going to play an instrument and sit down and try to sing the vocal part with you on, on what several. Robert is more of a guy that can put together the ideas. And he's not a musician like that, but he'll put together the ideas and put together the right talents and the right people. And for, you know, his concepts, I think Robert's more of a concept kind of guy where I might be more of the guy that I literally sit down in the studio with the musicians and spend a whole night just playing with key signatures and, and, and you know what I mean? Kick drum samples. Mm-hmm. And as a management, um, as far as a management style, Robert is a, a lot more sort of, Robert's a, a, a great like street manager, you know what I mean? Be, you know what I mean? Believe in the product, believe in the artist, make things done get connections made, you know what I mean? Hustle and, and talk great game and, you know what I mean? Outsmart people and, and be tricky and, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and, and, and that type of thing. Bit savvy, not the word, not tricky, savvy. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Management style. You know what I'm saying? Um, brute force required that sometimes in terms of like how you approach and how you deal with people in terms of just being very frank with them and how you speak and how mm-hmm. you can kind of cut deals with people to make things happen. My observation is Robert is that style of manager. My style of management was more sort of like executive level, dealing with the attorneys, paperwork stuff, um, doing things on that sort of angle, looking for more like, you know, opportunities like um, in the space in terms of like, you know, uh, uh, you know, business ideas or musical ideas, linking with other artists. Not to say Robert hasn't done those things though. But I think the styles are a lot different. I'm the guy that will go sit in the boardroom and discuss stuff with the execs or on the phone or do a chain of emails back and forth about how to move forward and plan and have meetings and 
you know, more like that. Robert is more the guy that be like, yo, this needs to happen. Let's just make it happen. Let me go find this guy, make the link, make it happen. You know, mm-hmm. he's more kind of action oriented manager. Maybe that's a better way to put it to where I think I've been a more um, uh, boardroom style manager. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably the best example. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But, um, but we'll both agree on one thing all the time when we speak. We'll believe in the power of the song, mm-hmm. which a lot of managers don't believe in. And we, me and him hold firm on that. Anything that happens, we're just like, yeah, but the song that's a hit. And that's where it has to come from. You know what I mean? The song's that's a hit. And we'll talk nowadays about nowadays artists and, yeah, man, this one has potential and this one could do this and that one is that. But we'll keep coming back to the same thing. Like, nobody's guiding them as, yeah, but where's the hit song? Not that, not the hits, not the, how much social media, how many posts and trending and like, all that is fine and good, but where's the song? Mm. I think we and Robert still agree, like, that's something which is really missing nowadays no but but yeah man as a mentor um specialist as well okay um but have not as much interaction specialist as i've had with robert but those guys were very supportive because it was seen kind of like you know as a continuation as a passing of the torch type of thing you know what i'm saying like here comes another guy with another artist who's going to pick up on what we have done and move forward yeah you had to have the success of shabo to then have the success of shaggy you had to have the success of shaggy to have the success of sean Mm-hmm. You understand? It's it's a something you're building on. Mm-hmm. You know I mean, standing on the shoulders of giants is what it's called, right? That's the expression. So we keep standing on each other to try and you know go higher and higher. Definitely, and make it good because I know conversations with him now would directly help you navigate the waters of, especially now dealing with this monster of an artist. You understand? Because remember, Sean Paul is not the regular run of a mill artists from the music to the look and everything. So you definitely need it. Even if they couldn't give you 100% the plan, what they might've given you would have been good enough to get you up and running to move forward from there in your management style. I mean, yeah, most definitely. I mean, just first of all, just by, 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 you know, by doing it before us. So just making that kind of roadmap, you know what I mean? To say, you know what I mean? This is what's possible. This is how far we got doing something. And this is what you can do to move forward. Really more what it is, Sheldon, is actually showing us the mindset of how it works outside of Jamaica. Because in Jamaica, you're really concerned with like, yeah, man, the juggling and the hot song and which song I mash up the dance and blah, blah, blah. Your perspective is a lot different. When you get up to the US or outside of Jamaica, you start dealing with executives. They're not concerned with any of that. Mm-hmm. That doesn't really matter to them. They're not listening to any radio, no juggling. They don't know what that means. Mm-hmm. As top executives at those labels aren't sitting there listening to your music and making decisions. They have people for that. They give it out to the radio guys. They get feedback. You understand me? They come back and they're like, oh, you know, we service the records radio and, you know, these guys say that the song is really strong and it's doing well in these markets. That's how they look at it. Like spreadsheets, markets, where the records are doing. You're not playing the actual record for them. Like they're not listening to it and being like, yo, this bad or this is a hit. Like not, yeah. not at that level. You know, you know what I'm saying? They're not doing, especially not for our music too, which their attitude is really like, we don't really know anything about this music. We just know that it's popular. Mm-hmm. We didn't grow up on it. We don't understand the language. We don't know what you're saying. We have no idea. Mm-hmm. So they have to farm it out. So even when you see some dancehall artists now getting all of these deals and getting signed, it's not based off of these people looking at them and be like, yo, we love this music. They're just saying that these guys are hot mm-hmm. in Jamaica. So let's sign them because something can happen. But it's not based off of their A&R, their ears, like, oh, this song is good. They don't know which song is good. They're waiting for the market to tell them which song is good. It's a reactive process when it comes to dance music. 
But with hip hop and R&B and that stuff, it's a lot more of an active process mm-hmm. like people would experience in that genre. You get me? That can go to the studio, the label and hear records and be like, yo, that's a smash. Whatever. That's it. That's a record. That's a single. Then pick it and then run with it and go with it. With all thing, it's very much reactive. Like, wait and say, it looks like it's big in Jamaica. Okay. All right. Let's run with that song. Let's run with that artist. It's that type of scenario. We could sit here. I could ask you 30 to 40 to 50 more questions about the Sean Paul era, but you've done so much of music that I just want to probably ask you two more questions and move on because there's still so much grounds to cover when it comes to Mr. Harding. You understand? Yeah, man. All right. You guys, you met this kid. We'll call him kid for argument's sake. Kid, your brother introduced you to him. You guys started to do stuff. You started to work and work. You guys linked up with VPN Atlantic, did all this. When you got, when you actually won a Grammy now for all this work that you guys have been putting in, what was that moment like in the journey? We had to fight for that Grammy win because they didn't want Sean to win the Grammy. Um, Roger Stephens didn't want Sean to win the Grammy. I was going to call out names. He was sitting on a Grammy board at the time and his attitude was that Sean was a hip-hop artist because he had done collabs with Busta Rhymes and Lou Cantrell and Maya and all of these people. And he didn't think Sean should, should be able to even be nominated in the category. That's straight up how that went. Um, we had to lobby to make sure that Sean got that nomination. We had to run around the place and get signatures, literally, from luminaries in the reggae business to basically give back, back to the Grammy board to say, like, Sean Paul is a reggae artist, deserves to be in the category. Mm-hmm. We had to go and get signatures from Slan Robidem and Chris Blackwell and like all kind of journalists, all kind of people all over the place. So it wasn't any easy thing like, oh, what kid, Sean won a Grammy race. Like, no, bro, we have to go fight for that shit. They didn't want him to win any Grammy. He was not seen as the person who should be representative for Jamaican culture and, and, and Grammy award winning reggae in a reggae category at all. A massive fight. People don't understand what went through with Sean and Abro. A lot of people locally and abroad who just said that this is not the representative that we want. It's not the guy that should be. It doesn't fit the profile. He's not from the ghetto. He's not black. You know what I'm saying? Skin color, wise complexion. He's not poor. Social class. Everything was wrong. So even stuff like the Grammy win was bittersweet. I mean, like we won it and we're excited about it, of course, personally. But we knew that we had to go against so much just to, you know what I'm saying? To feel that we rightfully deserved it. But to reach a point where the, the songs were too big and he was just too massive to be ignored. And there was no way that he wasn't going to be able to win. As long as he could get in that category, then of course he was going to win it. You know what I mean? But we was had to kind of make sure to put things like, with the songs like I'm Still In Love, like those records, because... The dance all that we were doing, as I said, the purists saw it as hip-hop. Mm-hmm. They saw Gimme the Light as, I know it sounds weird like that, but that's what they saw it as hip-hop because the style of the music videos looked hip-hop. Mm-hmm. You get what I'm saying? And the collabs he was doing with people, they were rough, very rough artists. So in their brain, they categorized it as some kind of strange hip-hop thing. Just they didn't, to them, it didn't belong in a reggae. So what the songs like I'm Still In Love With You to always bring back Sean to a reggae bass to show them at this core says, yo, yeah, we can make those hip-hop colors, or we can still make classic reggae records that can play in any reggae dance anywhere in the world and stand up beside any one of these records. I've seen an interview with um, Beanie Man, and Beanie Man was saying, off of the strength of Who Am I, it seemed like he was supposed to really get that international super break, but then it's like after a while, Sean Paul got the break. Do you think there's any reason why Sean Paul got the break over Beanie Man at that time? 
I cannot put it down to better management. I don't know what mm-hmm. else to tell you. What else would I be able to say mm-hmm. about it? Being a man got himself embroiled in 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 controversy. You know what I'm saying? With the with the you know gay bashing mm-hmm. lyrics and all of that. He put himself on that list as well. And then he had to, you know, be a part of that apology letter and the whole was it glad the gay community that was trying to lock down his shows and all that. Those things start to happen for being a man. I think by the time he got like um it's not Gallon or Bungle. Which one of the big records? Uh, King of the Dance Hall. One of those records that he did. By that time, MTV and BT, those places were snubbing him and he was getting a lot of pressure from international rights activists to change his stance on the LGBTQ community. Mm-hmm. That hampered his success like tremendously. You know what I mean? That was also happening at the time. So, a victim of circumstance perhaps with that. Yo, big up to Beanie and we'd all love to be the man. I mean, he made me just as much as I helped that record in his career, you know what I'm saying? But I think that's what was taking place with him at the time. Um, that that hampered his progress, you know what I'm saying? And that's managerial choices, doing the song with Janet Jackson and he decided to sing instead of DJ. <laughs> like weird things like that, which he was doing. You know what I mean? I don't know what else to put it down to. I know where this is leading to this question of like, oh, because Sean was the brown uptown guy and that's why he got the fucking break, which is nonsense because mm-hmm. record companies don't work that way. Mm-hmm. No record, no record company in New York doesn't work that way. They're they're not under this 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 air of shadism, like mm-hmm. Jamaicans, bro. It's absolute stupidity. What are you talking about? They have R and B artists and rappers signed to the label. They're black like fucking tar. Mm-hmm. What difference it make? There's no brown person thing in a record label that makes the brown people the better or the light skinned people the better. All that's garbage. Working with the with the with the urban music department and they're all black people. They're from down south from the States, there are black people signed to the label, there are black artists, black rappers. There's no thing that says, oh, well, you're brown and you're going to get more of the push. All that is stupidest, bro. I just can call it out straight up and down. I hear Shaggy saying the same thing too. Big up to Shaggy. I mm-hmm. disagree with you 1,000%. That's never been our experience mm-hmm. about being brown, helping nothing and nobody internationally, nothing like that. Does it help in terms of marketing and image and those things? Yes, of course. Because mm-hmm. it's just about, you know what I'm saying? Like anything else, though. Not that it's about being brown, but just about, you know, just image marketing for any artist. Just mm-hmm. being, you know what I mean? Attractive and hitting the demographics and what people find attractive. I understand that. Which is why 50 Cent was not a pop artist. One of those kind of reasons. Why those people can't be in that. That's just the way of the world, though. And the way how the music industry is structured. You follow what I'm saying? For the same reason why, you know, Rihanna doesn't get to the same places that Taylor Swift gets to. She gets to different places. And she's just as majestic in, in her own right. So I'm not telling you that it, it, like it's not a factor ever, mm-hmm. but it's not a factor for Jamaican music is point I'm making because we are still classified as urban, which is code for black music. So no matter whether you're brown, Asian, red, green fucking purple or anything as long as you're doing dance or reggae bro and you drop into a u.s radio station or a u.s record company you're black music hmm. so there's no segment for the browner guys to get better to, to 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 be better off is what i'm yeah. trying to explain to you thought i'm saying all all that's that's silly yeah. there's tons tons of black r&b and rappers like biggie smalls big fat ugly black guy fucking multi-minute what are you talking about so why does that stop any Jamaican artist because of your skin color, your blackness. It's stupidness, Shalon. It's upsetting when I hear people talk about it. And I'm not saying that's what he is saying, but them, them type of comments kind of lead to that speculation of, hmm, wonder why Sean got bigger over 
And also the fact that Sean Bonafide has three number one records on Billboard. That's yeah. not because of being brown. At the time, you know what I'm saying? What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. And today it probably has like 10, top 10 Billboard hits, bro. It's the songs that you're making. It's the records. Mm-hmm. That's what makes you unstoppable. What, what are you going to talk about? Why did Sean get big? Because he had Beyonce, Baby Boy. Because he had tricking Get Busy. Because he had Temperature. You understand? Because he has monster collabs with monster artists and still has monster collabs with monster artists. That's why he's bigger than people. That's the sole reason why. It's the songs. So let's just debunk that right away, bro. Love, love Beanie. And I still, I have said it publicly and I'll state it once again. Beanie Man is the greatest dancehall artist ever in the history of this music. Mm-hmm. Me, me, Jeremy Harden says so. Sean Paul is the greatest crossover artist out of Jamaica. In my opinion, <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? Got Crossover dancehall, but greatest dancehall artist, hands down, Moses Davis, bro. No, so we sure. love and respect being it for sure. For sure, let's just get that out there. I could see because I could see this one here. You could tell that clearly this has been something that throughout your career would, when you're dealing with Sean Paul, this was something that came up time and time and time and time, time again, because you could see this, this one really triggered something in your soul this time here. Yeah, bro, because it's just because it, 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 it's a it's an excuse. It's something to hide behind. Go make better records. Mm-hmm. That's what you need to do. Figure out what records work in the international market and go make those records. And stop trying to say that it's because of your skin color and because you can't get to work. That's, that's nonsense. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't make any sense. I mean, stop trying to hide behind it or point it as to a reason of a man's success because of anything. It's nothing to do with that. They have hits. Shaggy had monster hit records. What are you talking about? Number one record, smash, tear up the world, sell freaking diamond. That's why. It's not It's not his skin color. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? It's the size of the record. Go make some monster records, bro. Stop talking about skin color. Mm-hmm. It's a hindrance, if anything else, bro. It has been, you understand me? It makes the harder thing to mountain to climb. That's what it seems like in your career, because you say even journalists were, were they didn't believe you guys at the Grammys, you guys were having problems. It seems like every door... As big as we've seen it, it seemed like there was a lot of problems to get through these doors that we've seen you guys went through. Yeah, of course. And then once once you get through the doors, then you realize that you clear the path for other people to come where people are just like, okay, it's cool now. It doesn't matter where you're from. After the success of us, the whole uptown had producers running out there making down. Nobody had but an eye. Mm-hmm. You understand? Don Corleone, Chimney, Daseka. The list goes on and on and on, bro. It's not even a concern anymore. Nobody even cares. You know what I mean? And other artists that come through. Dancehall in a stranglehold. Uptown had dancehall in a stranglehold at one time. Strangle. Bro, as things grow, they're going to have people that break down barriers. You've had it in other forms of music too. You had it in rock and roll and in in country and all these other genres of music where it was a select group of people that used to do the thing and then somebody came along and broke that mold. So yes, Don Newt broke a mold. Shaggy broke a mold. Sean Paul broke a mold. For certain. There are always going to be challenges there. You know what I'm saying? And the success of these artists boiled down to having a hit record. Because when you start to travel and interact with people, you start to realize out, outside of the Jamaicans, nobody's paying attention to that as much as you may think. You understand what I'm saying? A man just said, oh, the song's a hit. Oh, well, you know, Sean, they even know what that means. What do you mean he's uptown? They don't even understand any of that. They're not looking at skin color. Look at the reggaeton in the Latin market right now. Everybody's brown. 
It's because they're all brown. It's because they have hit records, bro. It's because they have the populace to support them. How do you explain Afrobeats? Mm-hmm. Burner Boy's black. Why is he successful? Mm-hmm. Why is he crossing out? You understand me? The, the argument just, it fails. At every point, Sheldon, you try to point it, you're like, well, that just failed. So I don't know why. These are black artists and people of different jo- doing stuff in the music. So what are you sitting here complaining about? Mm-hmm. So it's disappointing to hear it. It's understandable why at the time, they would have felt that way. And if you grew up in Jamaica, you feel the shadism. It's what I only just want to say it's racism. Because Jamaica, it's weird. It's shadism. It's like degrees of like brown to red to light skin to black. You know what I'm saying? So you're talking shades, shades <laughs> yeah. of blackness. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And it's something that is ingrained into us. So we'll, we'll, we'll call people like that. Like we we'll say, yeah, man, you don't know German, man, a brown youth, man. That, that's how they refer to you. You know, Sheldon, man, yeah, man, a black youth. in black. And in big and that's what people describe you. It's not a derogatory term. It's literally <laughs> that, that, that's just how it is. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, th- so they, we still use it a lot. That what a pretty brown girl. People make songs about it. I love my car. I love my bike. I love my money and thing. I love my browning. Bojo, you know what I'm saying? Because mm-hmm. it's, it's seen as like, yeah, man, a high class. So it's part of our, our Jamaican culture. I get it. So mm-hmm. I understand why people feel that there is resentment towards those things. You know what I mean? Spice feels it. I'm black. That's why I'm not getting anywhere. She'll say it. You know what I mean? And then people say, oh, Shensio, because she's brown. Finally, we'll have a brown girl that can compete. They still want to kind of measure it up against that. And it has to do with the songs that you have. If you have the hit song, you have the hit song, bro. Nobody's giving a shit about that in real life. I'm on, the bigger, on the bigger scale, there, there might be a, oh. a small percentage, but on the big scale, nobody. Cares. On the big scale, they care about money. That's what they care about. Does it make money? Then we'll work with it. Don't care. You could be green and from Mars. Is your song a hit? It works. You know what I'm saying? Let's create an AI artist and make a hit song. Can it make money? Can it stream on Spotify? That's all they care about. Mm-hmm. All they care about is the money is going to make them. They're not having any agenda to push one skin color over another skin color to prefer nobody. All that is stupidness, bro. Keep explaining to people. Until the day that they actually go and sign with a record label or interact with big radio in the States or any of those people or promoters, they'll understand that none of those people are paying attention to that, bro. Nobody's in that room saying, let's push this because of this color. It's something in their head because they feel that in their life in Jamaica, they can't get ahead, like in their mind, because their bosses are lighter skin complexion or, you know, the pretty brown girl gets a married rich guy or whatever it is that they see unfolding up in front of them in society. And the way we speak to each other as black people, yeah, man, look how you're dirty and black, so. I would say it in a derogatory term. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? To describe people and, and stuff like that. Yeah, man, I'm nice. A pretty little brown baby. We say these things. We do it to ourselves. So we grow up in this thinking that black is bad, brown is... Bro, this is a big, wide conversation about social class, cultural racism, shadism. Probably too much for this, this, this interview. But it's that which they're trying to superimpose onto the music business is what I'm trying to say to you. Mm-hmm. You get what I'm saying? And it's unfair because it is not the case. It has to do with hit songs that generate money for everybody involved. And if you can do that, they do not care what color your skin is, bro. Just and that's, that's what you have to do. Yes, just do the job with music. That's it. Got you. Wonderful, amazing run. Probably 16, 15, 16 years, Sean Paul. All this great stuff. Why did you guys decide to part ways? I think we had reached a point where we'd, 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 um, we did a record. 
Um, my God, what's the name of the album now? You got to remind me now. Imperial uh, Blaze? Imperial Blaze, yeah. We did the After Success run with two albums. One that did like 8 million and one did like 2 million. The first two, right? The Truck and Trinity. We got to this third record. And Sean had decided at the time, we're, we're just going to talk everything into one, right? Sean had decided at the time he always wanted to work with younger producers, and in particular, Steve McGregor. Big up Steve McGregor. Let me start by saying this. Mm-hmm. It is not, not pointing fingers or pointing blame. I'm giving a historical fact. Mm-hmm. Sean wanted to work with Stephen on this record. Stephen had a new sound in Jamaica that had not seasoned itself into the international marketplace. Mm-hmm. His new sound was the sound that Sean wanted to move towards. He asked Stephen to produce the majority of the album. While he was asking Stephen to produce a majority of the record, Freddie asked me to manage Stephen, and so did EMI Records ask me to manage Stephen as well, because mm-hmm. Stephen was young, would have been 18 or 19, and then needed somebody to oversee him and help with his career. Sean agreed to it and said, let's bring Stephen into the camp. Freddie agreed, the publisher agreed, I signed Stephen as management. Sean wanted Stephen to produce the bulk of the album, and I told Sean, warned him, I said, the sound that Stephen has, although it is... Big in Jamaica, really popular, cartoon rhythm and da-da-da-da and all the arts he was working with. I said, it's not a seasoned international sh- sound, Sean. And Sean decided that he would go ahead, full steam ahead regardless. Mm-hmm. And so we turned down a lot of the producers at the time who were coming with us um, with beats that we thought made more sense for international market. We had just done a record called Give It Up To Me with Keisha Cole on a previous album, which did extremely well for us. With Don Corleone and Nigel Staff. And that was a record which we built from scratch. In other words, it wasn't a juggling rhythm. It was a record which we sat on the studio and we created it just on the spot and put together the record. And that went to number three. And that was significant because we all felt that finally we had gotten rid of this stranglehold of having to stick to juggling rhythms. Because mm-hmm. as we mentioned before, with the Give Me The Light and the Get Busy and all these records on temperature, they were all juggling rhythms. So their popularity was bolstered by the fact that you had hardcore dancehall artists on these rhythms and it was making noise in the core. Right? So we can agree, we agree with that, correct? And that is what helped a large part of the impetus behind those records becoming hits because they're already core smash records. So by the time the label take them up, the core already supported these rhythms because these, the songs were on it playing everywhere. So when they got the Sean Paul on it, now they're like, oh, wicked. Now we can run with the big commercial smash off of the rhythm. Doing the Keisha Cole record was pivotal because it broke us free of this idea of having to depend on juggling rhythms, which was a very scary place to be in managing an artist or for okay. an artist himself. Because that means you're just relying on like the fate of what happens in Jamaican dancehall music. Mm-hmm. You're hoping somebody's going to come up with a bad rhythm that you can run your voice on to find a hit. You, you couldn't sit down and just make your own record. You'd have to wait and see who else about juggling. You're keeping in touch with local producers. You're anybody have juggling coming out. And then you're trying to fit up a song in that juggling and hoping that you can match it with a juggling that has a chance of being a crossover commercial record. Hmm. Doing the Keisha Cole record broke us free of that. Moving forward into the next album, the suggestion by many of us in the process, Nigel Stark, myself included, Moriella, a lot of them was like, okay, now we can just go ahead and make records how we choose to make them. We don't need to rely on juggling. We don't need to rely on who is the hottest producer in Jamaica. 
Sean disagreed with that process, apparently, because he still just wanted to use the hottest producer in Jamaica, which was Stephen McGregor. So he did the album. I, I can't remember the album count now, but like 90% of the album was Stephen and that style of dancehall music. Right? It failed miserably. Can't. 5,000 copies or something like that from a guy that just sold 2 million and previously sold 8 million. Can't. Mm -hmm. Sean fell into a very deep depression over it and he was most distraught and he was his whole faith in the music industry his fans everything was shook to the core and he couldn't understand how he could have come from such a height of being such a popular artist with so many hits and this effort which he put a lot of effort into and not to say that there weren't good songs on it in a row but the style of that style of dancehall didn't break internationally never did really break internationally to be honest with you and he just felt like the public betrayed him, the record company betrayed him, everybody betrayed him, and fell into like a very deep depression over it for months and months and months and months. I think that just deteriorated the relationship. And, you know, I was trying to encourage him to kind of get back in the saddle and just kind of blow it off and be like, yo, everybody has a bad album. Rappers go through it, R&B, pop people go through it. Just brush it off. We'll come again. It's not a problem. I mean, we're lucky that we did two albums in a row that were so successful because everybody expected us to fail after Dutty Rock, to be honest with you, even the record label, mm. and even Atlantic, them, they're just like, okay, good, that, that was a fluke. You guys can't do it again. And we came back again and we did temperature. You know what I'm saying? And we did We Be Burning and we smashed the place again. I went double platinum. So now when that happens, the record label, I think, finally felt like, oh, we knew it was coming. The big flop record was about to happen. Um, you know, it happens to everybody. But they were still behind him. But they were trying to come up with their own ideas because I think they too kind of realized that this whole kind of idea of relying on like the juggling out of Jamaica to produce hits was, a, was very, you know, sketchy at best, bro. And they were not accustomed to working that way. They like to A&R projects and get people with the right producers and the correct writers, put them in the studio and let them work. They saw our process. They believed in it in as much as it was working. But then by the third record, when it didn't work, <laughs> Whereas everybody sort of put all their hopes on Stephen McGregor. And if Stephen watches this or anybody shows it to him, and I don't want Stephen to feel anyway because I have nothing but love for Stephen. We're just stating historical fact. And it's not, I'm not trying to assign blame to anybody, but this is just for the record. So we just need to speak about this is what happened, right? So hopefully he can appreciate that this is just historical fact that we're relaying. The record didn't work, the productions didn't work. Um, it, it just didn't happen and everybody just didn't understand it. Now, EMI Records was excited. I have to tell you the politics now because EMI signed Stephen as a writer, not EMI Records Publishing. Mm -hmm. So he or she was signed as a writer. Sean was signed as a writer. I was signed as a writer. I'm managing Sean. No, I'm managing Stephen. So it looks like everything was tied up in a nice big bow that everybody could just make this one big money off of this next record, right? Jeremy would stand to benefit if I'm managing the producer, the main producer and the artist. So everybody looked at it as though it was, I was a person making a decision. And EMI thought that, yeah, we're cornering the market. We're going to get the hottest producer of the dancehall, let him produce all the records and let Sean. So we'll own like 100% of all the publishers and all the records. Mm -hmm. So it was very kind of motivated to kind of line up that way. Except the fact is that th that type of dancehall was not the kind of dance that was crossing over. What a missed opportunity where we felt certainly that we could have gone back in the studio and continued the process that we we're doing and just make songs from scratch and forget about juggling and who is the hottest producer and who has the baddest rhythm. Just go in there. We were seasoned enough to know to go in there and just make a good record. 
and we know the type of dancehall that would work. We had broken that ceiling, and we figured, let's just go in there and do the work. Sean didn't believe in that process and opted not to do it, as I said, and ran with all of Stevens' productions. The album fails, does 5,000 copies. He falls into a deep depression. All of a sudden, everybody around Sean is saying to him, you need to do something, you need to make changes. I'm trying to tell Sean, we need to rally back, we need to come back again under certain things. He drifts into, he wants to do record production, he wants to voice his juggling, do his own rhythm. Um, I don't know what else is going on with Sean's head. I don't even want to pretend to talk to him because we never really had much more of a conversation that, than that about it at the time. The record labels was trying to say, let's reinvigorate it. Let's get Sean back in the studio. Let's, let's, you know, let's go to Nelly Furtado. Let's go back to Timbaland. Let's go back to somebody. Let's go back to some ideas, some collabs with people. And Sean was just resistant to all of those ideas and just said, no, he's not interested in any of that. I made a suggestion at the time for him that maybe we need to do an image change. You know, we maybe had done this thing with the, with the braids for so long. And we had done it at the time too because, it, you know, it, it, it made him kind of fit in with a Hispanic crowd. And, he, you know, he looked like, you know, big pun, <laughs> like a skinnier version. You know what I'm saying? And, <laughs> and like fat John, those rappers at the time, Latino guys and they had the braids and all of that. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I said, maybe we need an image change, Sean, and change up the hairstyle to something. Sean goes and cuts his hair into a mohawk and shows up at my yard. I was like, what the fuck are you doing? He's like, well, you said I need to change my hair. I was like, Sean, not a mohawk. What the hell? But his sense of humor and Sean was just like, well, fuck it. I don't care. It's a fucking mohawk and I like it. I was like, Sean, come on, bro. And he saw, and it would have started not to be on the same page with a lot of things. And I don't know the actual behind the scenes thing with him and his crew. But the, the next, after not being able to reach Sean, for many, many months, he came off of the road, basically, and just came to the studio one day and just said, yo, I just think I need new management. I just need a fresh change. I need something different. Thanks very much. And I need to make a change. And I've, and I've done so, basically, and I have a new manager. Just like Stone Cold like that, but not with any animosity, not mm-hmm. accusing me of doing anything wrong. Certainly not, nothing to do with any financial reasons or nothing like that. Never. And just kind of wanted to continue the relationship musically, to be honest with you. Um even though he wanted to end that side of the relationship. Of course, that was like impossible for me to do. I was like, what are you talking about? You can't, this is my bread and butter. This is what I'm doing here with you. I just built this studio about this house. I got married. This is my source of income. I don't have anything. What are you talking about? You just, you're firing me. Mm. I'm saying that in my head, mm-hmm. but, um, mm-hmm. but Sean was just like, yeah, cool. Let me play a bunch of new songs, which I did. And he kind of like wants to just keep the link and sort of, as I said, just kind of keep that going. So that, that's basically what happened. And I think, in my personal summary is like, you know, you, if you watch sports, NBA or, you know, soccer, football, anything else, when the team is suffering, they, they, they fire the coach. They, 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 don't, they don't get rid of the players. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's the coach is the first one to go. And I think, I think I was just a victim of that. I think it just, the thing crumbled and everybody just said, okay, fire the coach. <laughs> that he retained his road manager. He, well, he had fired a band. He got a new band, new management. But he retained most of the other people that were around him, basically. And, and that's, that's the decision that was made. So um wasn't a very good breakup in terms of that, but it wasn't anything like based on like, oh, you know, this is what happened and that's why they broke up. Mm-hmm. It was a matter of circumstance. Uh, Stephen left, moved, migrated out to Jamaica. He has found success doing what he is doing. God bless him. Um, Sean continued and has had successes in, in other areas as well. But um, in my view, never came back to that sort of making the album to go platinum again level of artist that he was. Maybe times have just changed. Maybe you have to look at gauge success in, in different manners. 
And for many years, we didn't speak. Mm-hmm. And I think several years ago when Sean, he eventually got married. My life had changed at the time. So I got married, I had kids. Sean was showing up at the studio trying to hang out and smoke weed at night. And I'm just like, bro, I'm like changing diapers upstairs. Like I can't do this. <laughs> you know, I'm saying with you anymore. And I think that was confusing at the time too. And I think he kind of felt like, oh, well, I'm in the midst of like, you know, this career and Jeremy has sort of gone off on the sojourn to start a family and going to daddy mode. And I need somebody. I'm guessing, bro. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? And the people around him probably were just saying the same thing. What's Jeremy doing? He's just sitting down here in this big house and making all this money from you. And he's not, he's not on the road, bro. He's not in the studio with you at 4 a.m. And I think they kind of saw it that way too. When many years passed and Sean got married eventually and had his kid, and it was a Father's Day, came up and I thought to myself, whoa, this, this is Sean's first Father's Day because, you know what I'm saying? And, and we weren't speaking for years. And I just texted him and I was like, yo, bro, happy Father's Day. Welcome to the world of being a dad. And that sort of like, oh, germs, respect, dog, blah, 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 blah. And then he called me and then we're like on the phone for like four hours that night, just talking and not really rehashing what had happened. Mm-hmm. No, nobody's apologizing. For them. Nobody's like, yo, this is the reason. None of that. It was just sort of like a reconnection because at, at at, I think at the core, the relationship started off as people who became friends that had a shared interest and love for music and had a similar background and who battled through it and it turned into a professional relationship. But it started off as friends who enjoyed music together. Mm-hmm. And you know what I'm saying? So I think somewhere like that still kind of exists regardless of the professional relationship. So, you know, in in retrospect, how, how do you look at it? We're talking about 15 years of success. We're talking about, you know, all of these, this hand, the plaques on the wall and the accolades and there's no regrets. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, I think on, on either of, of our parts, I don't think, I, I don't say a bad word towards Sean ever, and I don't think he has ever. I've never seen it come to my attention that Sean has ever tried to badmouth me or said anything. Uh, Jeremy fucked up and he this, and that's why I had to fire him or blah, 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 blah. I've never heard him actually articulate anything like that either. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? In, in, in that way. But um, yeah, that's, that's basically how the, the relationship went, and that's how the relationship um, ended or, or changed, you should say. I don't, ended is a funny word, you know what mm-hmm. I'm saying, into what it is today. Because because artists see things one way, managers see things a completely different way. It's just while you guys are growing together, it's just to continue to see things the same way. Because with a lot of the the mega stars when it comes to dance hall and reggae, the managers that they started with that even brought them to the success after a while, they they kind of break up too. Shaggy, uh, Shaggy and Robert Livingston, Supercat Robert Livingston, um, you and Sean. There was a couple more that got to this level and then after a while for whatever reason it's just okay it's time to part ways now coffee is another one too there's many examples of it bro and i mean this this if there was a different type of show we could sit there and talk about artists and their behavior <laughs> you know what i'm saying and like how they, they feel towards you know their own personal sense of 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 stardom entitlement their own sort of you know what i mean attitude towards you know, what they deem as going to the next level in the industry or into the business. Um, perhaps maybe it's an overreach on, on many of our parts to think that the friendship was more important than the business side of the relationship. I think that might happen with a lot of people too. Mm-hmm. Like going to it thinking, oh, me and this guy are cool, we're friends. And 
I help them out. And maybe they're just saying, like, no, no, it's just business opportunity. I don't feel like you can take me to the next level of where I need to go. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? If there's any such thing as in defense of an artist's thinking, which it's, I find it unbelievable that I would say that. But I think many of, many of them would probably give you that answer. You know what I mean? I was trying to go to the next level and that person couldn't carry me anywhere further. They would say that. And the, the manager side, I could just say like, you know, a, a very famous record producer here in Jamaica from the generation previous to me um, always said to me, artist loyalty is to royalty. So in his view, like if they're not making the money, you're out for whatever the reason, even if they're the reason mm-hmm. and the money dries up, they don't care. They're just, that's what they, that's what they got towards. So if they think that there's somewhere else or more money can be made or somebody convinces them like, Hey, forget this guy. If you go with this person, they can make you more money. You know what I mean? And promise them stuff. I'm like, I can get you this and I can get you that. And they're just like, okay, fuck it. Let's just go there. Let's just do that. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Very, very difficult to kind of to kind of see it in that way. But I think the difference is that in a North American's perspective, when you think of black rock bands and or, or, or in the UK or, or hip-hop or things like that, the management-artist relationship is a lot more sort of, it's a lot more business relationships. People are signing with management firms. Mm-hmm. You get what I'm saying? Like, oh, you'd sign with an accounting firm. You know what I'm saying? Or, or have a, a legal entity assigned to or something like that. So, You'll have a handler, somebody who's in charge of your project, but like a big management agency has tons of people working for them and they're handling artists. Mm-hmm. So it's not uncommon for artists to be like, oh, I was with so-and-so management for five years or 10 years and that just went to so-and-so management. You know what I mean? It's like sports management, that type of thing. Because so it's, it's not so personal. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? But the thing is about the, like, the Jamaican perspective of the dancehall thing is that we're, we're not that evolved as an as a industry mm. to sort of look at it that way to be like oh it's just like a company and we just manage various artists and art is a very much a cottage industry bro so these people you say are personal relationships that they develop with artists Robert and Shaggy personal relationship mm. me and Sean is a personal relationship you know what I'm saying like all of these other people I don't, I don't want to call too many more names and like, I don't really know these people well but for what I gather a lot of the other ones that you have seen top is personal relationships that have been through these artists, pick them up from zero. Some of them sleep on the fucking couch in their house, bro. It's not just it's not just music management. It's it's psychological work. You know what I'm saying? Working with the artists, it's self esteem. It's it's like it's a lot of these things. So a lot of these managers sort of feel that I have taken you from the the zero or from nothing, and I put my personal time, effort, energy, and in many cases finances to build something with you. And while we were building, I was not earning, but you were benefiting from the process of us building. <laughs> but I was not getting anything out of it, financially or as a return or, or whatsoever. You get me? And then no one I've carried it at this point, and you finally said like, okay, I've made it, or the finances are here. Or Then you decide like, I'm going to cut you and move to the next level. And I think that's the part that just feels like the, the disloyal part that people feel towards artists and their behavior. In general, you know what I'm saying? With the industry, is that sort of manner where they feel like, well, I don't need you anymore. And and then worse, some of them turn around and talk about they've been robbed. You know what I'm saying? And or they could have gotten more opportunities that I didn't do enough for them. So it's 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 very a treacherous kind of place to exist in this industry. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I don't know, I can't think of any manager in Jamaica who has just stuck with that artist for the whole time and the artist has dismiss them unfairly 
or even try to go and slag them off in the press. As I said, I feel lucky that that, that hasn't happened to me, that I've not been slagged off in the, in the press or in the socials by Sean, you know what I'm saying? But um, yeah, it's a, it's a very difficult place to be in. Um, of course, and then you have had the managers who are fucked up, who actually have robbed the artists and who made for shit sure. deals and went behind their back and, you know, conducted business. Oh, yeah, man, I got a show for you. How much is a show? Yeah, man, you know, 10 grand. And okay, fine. And they go on the road and the promoter's like, yeah, man. Well, you know, so I just send the manager the, 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 the balance though for the show. Yeah, man, 15 grand, them 10, and we'll just send them the rest. And then the artist is like, well, fuck, you mean 15? They told me 10. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, so there's lots of bullshit like that happen with, with managers too. So not in defense of all managers, you know what I'm saying? There, there's, there's miscreants, scoundrels, unethical criminals. And you know what I'm saying? That they exist across the board. You know what I'm saying? In all of it. But um, I guess it's part and parcel of the business, bro. If you yeah. ask me if I'd do it all over again, I'd just say yes. What, what would I tell you? Like, no, I wouldn't. You know what I'm saying? No, the, 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 the run was an amazing run. Why wouldn't you? It's just every yeah. good thing has to come to an end. Okay, you had 15 years of a crazy run. Why wouldn't you want to do that again? Obviously, right. you wouldn't want it to end on the 15th day. The 15th year in one day, obviously, nobody you want to keep it going as long as you could. But to say, look back and see what it was, that was an amazing run, boss. Right. Yeah, man. Respect, man. For real. And I Very mean, amazing. Very grateful because we don't get that opportunity out of Caribbean music at all. Mm-hmm. Few people will count mm-hmm. them on one hand. You know what I'm saying? That Great. has gotten that opportunity to, to be there. So we'll give thanks. Take it to them. When Okay. Now I want to talk about the business a bit with you. You brought up something earlier. We just glossed over, but now I want to get into it. AI. What do you think is going to happen with AI and especially reggae dancehall? Because I have a theory, but I want to hear yours first. Well, you know, I was talking with my brother the other day about the AI concept, and he said to me, of course, you know, we're sitting here looking at all of these tools and these websites where you can, like, build beats from them and you know, not just chat GPT, but other AI powered tools mm-hmm. you can use to fix, correct your mixes, upload your songs. It tells you what you need to do. Um, so you can just select genres of music style, key signature BPM, and just, you know, hit, you know, hit render. And it just makes a beat in the, in the style of the record that you want, for example. And you can just download it and pay whatever, 80 bucks for the year or whatever. You have unlimited downloads. You have all of these things which are happening. And, you know, he said to me, well, well, two things I'll share with you. First of all, one, I remember I'd shared it with uh, Birch, mm-hmm. uh, Christopher Birch, Virtual Records, right? Another good regional man in the industry. And I'd showed him one of these AI-type sites I can build the beats. And after showing it to Birch, he said to me, Jeremy, I don't know whether to pop a bottle of champagne and rejoice or whether to hang up the phone and go fucking ball. <laughs> he says, I feel conflicted right now because on one hand, he's thinking that he can increase his output tremendously by using these AI tools as a producer mm-hmm. and basically tell it what type of beats he wants to build pretty much, you know what I mean? Or, 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 or designate key signature tempo, whatever. And basically, you know, like, it's like a, it's like a slot machine. You pull the handle and you see what pops up. That, that's kind of like how they feel. You know, you just hit preview, you hear a beat. Oh, that one's wicked, save, download. That one, that's so about Go again, go again, go again, change some parameters. And he felt like he could increase his output tenfold. Mm-hmm. As a producer, which would be amazing. And as the world wouldn't know whether it's AI generated or whatever, he generated, who cares? Nobody wouldn't give a give a shit. 
Because nobody knows now when you're in the studio making a beat. Did I just pull all the samples from Splice.com and fling them together? Or did I sit down and play every note? <laughs> no, nobody, nobody really cares, right? So mm-hmm. on one hand, he looked at it that way. The next hand was him saying like, well, shit, if artists can fucking figure this out any minute now, then what's the point of me existing? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Why would he need a producer anymore? Because even though the producers are sitting on there guiding artists and trying to help them with the song and be creative and stuff like that, it doesn't, you know, they've, they've stopped doing that a long time ago now. They're just taking tracks and just recording themselves and sending, sending back songs anyway, right? So if you can give the artist the option to go on an AI site and just generate beats. Mm-hmm. You know, what's the point of everything? What's the point of having a studio? What's all of this for? No, you know what I'm saying? So it, it sounds a death knell for like a lot of things and engineers get frightened too. If you can upload a mix and it can tell you how to correct the mix or even correct it, then why bother with a mix engineer? There, there are so many people that it, it affects. Mm-hmm. Uh, graphic artists, same way. Why bother? You can just generate graphics. Adobe has a product coming out. I think it's called Firefly. You, you, I've seen the demos of it. You should look it up. It's scary. You just type mm-hmm. in it. You know what I'm saying? Need a scene of a you know, man on a hill riding a horse. With a barn in the background, it just fucking makes like four choices. You just pick one. You know what I'm saying? And he can he can alter attention. So what's the why be a graphic artist anymore? The fashion industry is using it for their products. You don't need a model and a photo shoot. You just tell it, oh, it's a jeans ad, and we just need like female, 16 years old of African American descent, whatever, in this pair of jeans. And it just makes it. It looks photorealistic. You can't tell the difference. You know what I'm saying? So it's scary times mm-hmm. in one way. In another way, I'm talking to my brother and he's saying, okay, I hear all of that. But he's saying to, is it not just a natural evolution of where technology would go with the creative industries? In other words, there was a time when to have a recording studio to make a record, we needed a room with a drum set. We needed a big ass tape machine. We needed a board. We need an engineer. We need microphones to set up and mic the drums and for guys to sit down and plug in instruments and play and record it. You needed all that stuff to be able to make a record. Imagine when the computers came into play and they made Pro Tools and they made Ableton and Logic and all of these other tools, Cubase, and all of a sudden it's like, well, you don't need a fucking drum set anymore because we just have drum loops in the platform. You can just download from here. <laughs> and you don't really need, you understand me, like this anymore because it's just there. You don't really need an actual piano because we have piano sounds inside here. In fact, you don't even have to play piano because you can just get these MIDI files and just drag them in and I hit play, and if it's song good, just use that. And then in categories, you can just look on the net and just get them R&B, this, that, EDM, whatsoever, blah, blah, and just do it. So then that feels like the earliest form of sort of that. It's not AI, but it's just assistance of being able to make records with the use of technology. Mm-hmm. Now, it boils down to the fact that still somebody has to make a decision on it. It can't just magically make a hit. So still somebody has to have good ears to sit on and listen to it and be like, that's the right beat. That's the right sample to use from Splice.com. That's the right song for the artist to sing. That's the right tempo. That's the right feel. So somebody along the way still has to make some sort of decision about it. Mm-hmm. Right? So the question remains like, no, where is the power in that decision-making process? When you have a record label, the people at the label are not, I'm telling you, the majority of them are not music people, which people find hard to understand. <laughs> they are administrative people that work at record labels. Yes, you have an A&R department, but most of them farm out their... The, 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 the A&Ring process is a lot different now. 
A&R meaning artists and repertoire for mm-hmm. viewers that might not know. So they were the guys that would, back in the day, they would pick the song and get the songwriter and, and pair it with the artists and pair it with the, mu- the, the, produce, the producer or the musicians. And they have airs to say, like, I think this song is going to be the hit. Mm-hmm. And then that slowly morphed into like picking beats for artists then and picking songs. And then, and then now that morphs into doing the research to see who is popular on social media and who has numbers. Mm-hmm. And that's my A&R process. Mm-hmm. to see what is the market reacting to to assign this person. Becoming less and less about actual music. But the fact of the matter is that you'd ha- you still have somebody assigned to that role. Because the guy who's running the company, who's a CEO, is not necessarily a music guy. Like, he doesn't care about that. He's running a company. You get the difference? So I'm saying to you, the people that work sure. in the record labels, they're administrative people. They know to the promo, to the PR, to the scheduling. We need to get this out. We need to hit the station. We need to do this, run this ad, blah, blah, et cetera. Hit this market, blah, blah, blah. They're, they're not music people. They're not listening to the records and be like, that's a hit. I don't like that song. Change that lyric. That chorus is better. It's nothing to do with that. So it's long since been removed that those people have anything to do with music. When people have this idea, I'm signing to a major label. Oh my God, my life is going to be great now because now I'll have hits. Like, no, bro. The label is hoping that you know what the fuck you're doing. <laughs> there, you know what I'm saying? It's not a magic button push, red carpet push the button and the thing is a hit. They're administrative people. So as far as Jamaica and the reggae scene is concerned, these people are getting signed and every day they're coming. So-and-so got signed to this record label and that record label and Def Jam signed this one and Interscope signed that and RC. And then I sit down and watch it with a couple of my more seasoned friends and I'm like, means nothing. It doesn't mean jack fucking shit. Because unless you can take advantage of the opportunity, they don't know what to do. They have no idea. You just sit down and watch them. And then the records don't work. And then you start to hear the nonsense. You know what I'm saying? Oh, people are brown and who is black and the label didn't spend enough time on the promotion. It's like, bro, the song sucked. Nobody's around to kind of tell you how to make better songs. Mm-hmm. Introduce AI into the process now and you're removing, in their minds, another gatekeeper because they see it as gatekeepers. You know? The artists say the producer as a gatekeeper. The producers say the A&R got a record label like gatekeeper. The record labels say the radio station this track is as gatekeepers. Everybody's trying to get rid of gatekeepers. So the record label wants to feel like, you know what? Good, fuck radio. Because we're tired of paying these fucking radio assholes to play the shit on the radio. Mm-hmm. And doing this payola nonsense to get our records played. We have the internet, so screw them. This is great. We should bypass them. So that's how the labels want to feel about it. You understand? The, the record producers want to feel the same way. Screw some label and some a guy telling me about whether or not they want to sign my artist or put out my record. I don't care. We can just do it ourselves. No, we just put it online. So I don't need another gatekeeper. Mm-hmm. The artist starts to say, screw this producer who have my song who don't want to release it. Who's there trying to tell me how to DJ or how to sing? Another gatekeeper. I just can do my own thing. Just send me the beat and I'll just record it on my, myself. And then it, you go to AI now, heck, I don't even need a producer to send me the beat anymore. And they already started doing it by just getting the stuff off of YouTube, bro. Mm-hmm. You know how much dancehall records you could hear? Purchase your beats today in the back. They didn't even pay the people for them. It's fucking comical, bro. You know what I'm saying? It's stupid, bro. And, and they just were doing that anyway and just not even caring. And then eventually, like, okay, fuck it. And they pay these kids 200 bucks, whatever, for the beat. Now you should remove all that and go to AI, bro. So this slope that you're on just starts to fall mm-hmm. into nothingness where people thinking that they're removing gatekeepers were really. The gatekeepers were the tastemakers. 
that had a specific fucking air, talent, knowledge of the industry, knowledge of music, and vision. Sheldon, you understand? To be able to say, this record is going to be a hit, this artist is going to be a hit, this is what's going to work for this artist or for this production or for this song. So you remove visionaries, is what you're doing, and you're removing tastemakers. So it's a big open field. Anybody can be an artist, anybody can make any record they feel to make, because now you just use AI, you just make a beat, you just put it down, you just record yourself, and you just put it out yourself on any socials that you want to put out. And then you do the same nonsense, like when you go on YouTube and see people, you know, Sheldon Muscle never disappoints. These are the fucking comments. The, the bots, the bots, bro. The bots. You know what I'm saying? The crazy ass bots are like, love, love the video and the concept. Fire. Can't wait for this to be official. Sheldon never disappoints. What the fuck are you talking about, bro? You just put out this song in less than 24 hours. You have 3,000 comments mm. of bots. Yeah. Who's stupid? You think we're stupid? You're stupid? Everybody recognizes that. This nonsense, bro. So you remove gatekeepers, in effect, removing tastemakers, which are people who are trying to make your product better so that the industry can be better because they want you to sell more records or play more times on the radio or stream more. They want a bigger reaction out of these records so you can do shows and when you go on the stage and open your mouth, the place will erupt because everybody's going to love the song. <laughs> So where does AI land us with that? Now, to me, North America will figure out a way to make the AI work for them and they will tailor it because they're focused on the prize, which is about making money. Mm -hmm. So they're going to say, you know, we're going to use AI now. So the smart producer in the States is like, you know what, fuck this. Instead of me slaving over this drum machine or Ableton or whatever I'm using to make this beat, I'm going to use AI tools to bring across my ideas creatively. And I think that's where that will develop into. Just in the same way a man would say, yo, I don't need to have a tape machine and a drum set anymore. Now I have a loop pack. We used to have to pick the right loops. You used to have to put it together in the right way. You, you understand there's still some process by using loop packs and sampling and things like that. And I think it extends to the AI process where a guy is going to say, you know what? Yeah, I enjoyed the days of my drum set and running it to tape and the sound. And I loved it as an engineer. But now I realize that I'm just going to go and splice and drag in some loops and make the same record. So you, sh you shift sort of like your, your importance in the process and, and use your, the, the same vision, the tastemaker thing in that way. I'm not so certain that Jamaica will do this though because Jamaica has proven historically that they will just try and use things as shortcuts and not as tools to, 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 to make things, you know, to make the process more in, involved with creative people. But what it does is to cut out the creative people so I don't need a producer anymore. Screw them. Who cares? Let's just get a beat, an AI beat. Just download it because you're already there with YouTube. And at that point, you're just, you're just doing that to just do it on your own. So you crumble the industry. Then you just don't have no more industry. No gatekeeper. You don't need a radio guy. You don't need a producer. You don't need an engineer. Bro, do they even need managers? They, they, don't, even, they don't even do that with management. Yo, just DM get me the down. AI to do it. Well, basically, there's going to be an AI program that can schedule your tour. That's for certain. You know what I'm saying? Because it can do things like that already. You will be able to do things like that already. You just give it input values. You could just input the values and be like, yo, here are the tour dates, here are the cities. You need to get from A to B, five people are traveling, book the flights. Pretty sure it could just do that now, actually. Somebody should go try it, go and chat, chat GPT and ask it to book your flight. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? From Houston to Los Angeles with no stopovers on a Sunday between the hours of five. I'm sure it could just do it. It's going to spit it back to you and give you the prices and everything. You're it's not that problem. far... 
Right. It's a pro- just integrating all of that into it. But I'm just not confident mm-hmm. that Jamaican music industry is going to use it that way, bro. I think it's just another way for them just to make it more of a free-for-all that anybody can just do anything they want to do. And, you know, detrimental to the music. To me, to me, the first place that's going to get decimated, I mean completely decimated, is the dub plate industry. We got a preview of that when they started to splice songs and fake songs and stuff like that. And now I could get an AI. All I got to do is type this in with your voice already. Dub plate business is the first thing that's going to be 100% gone. Right. You know right, what I mean? Exactly. Be- because why would I need why would I need Beanie Man to say all this stuff while they have AI already that could sound like people? I have this AI right. that sounds like Beanie Man. I'm gonna type in the the customs how I want him to say the custom, and that's it right there. And what I even think is how advanced it's gonna get is it's gonna come to a stage where people are actually telling you these are AI dub plates. So then now in the clash, it's to see who came up with the better AI dub plate. I think that's really and truly where it's going to go. Bro, possibly by that time, Sheldon, and certainly like where you're right now, these kids don't care about no clash, bro, mm-hmm. and dub plate and stuff like that. Could the culture so far removed from that, dude? My son's in high school. I've never heard him once talk about clashing and they don't care. It's just not a part of the culture. So that probably will dis- disappear to as well. You say Mighty Crown just saying like, we're done. From Japan, they just saying like we're done, we quit, we're done. We don't well, we don't understand what this music is anymore. We're not interested in participating, and we're just we're done, we're retiring. We don't know what this is about. And we just disappear that part of the culture just disappears. You know what I'm saying? Where's 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 the where's this the, the you know the block hole in hip hop in the street yeah. party? Like that still exists. Where's the DJ in hip hop anymore? You know what I'm saying? Check it to it to scratch it and bring it mm-hmm. in and you go on the road with your DJ. That's just not a part of hip hop culture anymore, bro. It's Unfortunately, I mean, crazy. yes, it still exists in quart, certain quarters. I'm not saying it's gone totally. But, but it's not modern day, popular. No, bro. A modern day trap rapper does not need a DJ to do anything. It's not that kind of music. Nobody cares. Nobody's looking towards it that way. You understand me? And with soul system culture, it's the same type of thing. Nobody cares what is a clash. Nobody knows. Like, you know what I'm saying? It's just not, it's not the same. The kids don't look at it that way. Their focus is on music videos and YouTube and trending. And listen to me. Things must progress, and I don't want to sit there and sound like the old guy that is going no, to for sure. all the back in the days. And we're not saying that. All we're really concerned about is just having hit music that can just generate income and keep our industry thriving. Mm-hmm. That is really what my concern is. Dub played thing was an industry because sound system was an industry. Clash was an industry. It put people on the road, touring throughout the world and playing music. This jockeys, it gave artists exposure. You can bust on a dub plate, set you up for future shows. If you go somewhere and people play dub plates and the crowd hear you and, and the tape circulate and you, you gain recognition by being a wicked artist because sound system is promoting you and playing your stuff. It's one massive ecosystem that works. Mm-hmm. The sound system culture penetrates like the international culture, the mainstream culture. When you have Diplo and Major Lazer, that's sound system culture. Of course. It's but, but like playing EDM. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you understand? But the same concept of like, I'm a DJ and I have two MCs and this type of thing and the wheel and the pull up and, you know, the girls go out and dance on the head top and all that shit. That's fucking Jamaican sound system culture, bro. Mm-hmm. That's why it's called Major Laser. It's a play on the whole Lieutenant Stitchy, Major Worries, 
Captain Barkitz, Major Laser. That's what the character is. That's what that's what it's from. Big up to Diplo. I mean, not to take nothing from those guys, but they see the opportunities to integrate the culture into something. Big up to Walsh Fat. Uh, I see just the PBS shark that came out. I mean, wicked. wicked, wicked uh, you know, yeah, wicked. enough respect big to Walsh. Yeah, people get their props, bro. I always give people their props for what they have contributed, without a doubt. But a lot of that is coming from that culture. I mean, he's a man to talk about some system culture, not me. You know what I'm saying? But once that disappears, it's another lane that gets cut off. The whole industry just changes. We can lament or we can move forward. Mm-hmm. And I am all for moving forward, but my thing is I said, give me hit records and you're not giving us hit records by majority or the records are too local and too colloquial. The records are too parochial. You understand? Just about Jamaica and some little thing that's happening in some little area with one little subset of people. This is not broader culture. Mm-hmm. What are we talking about scamming forever and ever? Illegality has always been a part of dancehall music and hip-hop music and all various forms of music. We're not saying no. So back in the 90s, of course, man did a bus gun, man did a juggle weed. Man was doing that kind of fuckery. We're not saying, not like a moral stance that we're taking like, oh, my God, you guys are being, you know, this is not what the music should be about. I'm not trying to say that. We understand and appreciate that part of that culture of dancehall involves mm-hmm. that aspect of society. If, but we didn't sit down and just focus only on making the records about that one specific thing. You're at a point now where these guys are focused on making record after record after record about chop, 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 this chopper, that chopper, this. Like, it's mm-hmm. like, we get it, bro. We get it. You guys are choppers. We understand it. You're on the phone. You're fucking scamming people out of money and you're we understand. Could you make a song about something else, though? Like, because this is not dancehall culture. This is this is chopper culture. This is some other criminal activity culture that you are expressing. Mm-hmm. And if that's what you feel to do, go ahead and go do it. As I said, I'm not taking a moral stance or even a legal stance, to be honest with you, about it. That is your personal thing if you choose to live that way. But it is our music which we help create. It is not just Jeremy. It is a Tony Kelly and the Dave Kelly. It's a Slan Robbie. It's a Steel and Cleave. It's a Gussie Clark. It's a fucking Mikey Bennett. It's the people before us. It's a John Laws, bro. It's it's a it's a tricking, you know what I'm saying? Like all of these people that, that come before us. It's the King Tubbies and the Jammies, them and you know what I'm saying? It's like all of these forerunners that have been there before us. Cox and Dad. Go back, call all the names of all of them. I'm gonna miss some of them. It's something that they've been building to create an industry. Industry has different facets that work together to make an industry. So it all depends. Like we depend as a producer. I depend on the guy with the sound system to play my record, to promote it. The artist depends on him. I need the artist to put the artist needs me. I need the engineer to make it sound good. I need a booking agent to get me the visa to put the guy on the road. You understand? You need to have them to have your YouTube channel. To interview them. So if it goes away, you have no more YouTube channel. And before YouTube, if you had a radio show, if it goes away, you'd have no more show. That's it. Change station, change format. Nobody cares. Nobody's listening to this music anymore. Let's change the format. It's we one massive ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Everybody. And so what you do when you try to like, you know, take the industry now and like put it into your like own personal emotional feelings place of where you think music should be. Then you get into this thing about, oh, well, you know, it's just all about me. And right now I'm in a business with no guy. I'm gonna need a manager. I'm gonna need a, you know, um, no, 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 no agent, bro. And I'm gonna need a producer. I'm gonna do my thing and blah, blah, blah. And 
whatever. And then everybody gets into this little, making all of these little records about themselves and their feelings. And then you have a stage show and they run out there and they're jumping on and they're screaming and, and people are just like, and you look at them like, yeah, bro, these records don't, they don't, they don't translate to live audience. You see what I'm saying? And then they become uncontrollable, bro. You end up with this, 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 where this industry is now today. And you just look at it like, Shella, you know how much people out of work? <laughs> like musicians that are packed up and out of work, man, that migrate, bro. Top musicians that play for artists and chronics, all kinds of people just done. There's yeah. no tours. There's nothing for them to fucking do. They're working. Man is driving Amazon truck in Florida, bro. Man on the farm work in a some place, bro. Some top, top musicians, bro, just quit. Hmm. There's no industry for them anymore. It's just done with. Booking agents that just go out of business. People are just done with engineers, all of these people, producers. Same thing. I have all this equipment. Millions of dollars is spent with all of this gear. You can't even call an artist. Yo, I want to work with you. Boy, father, I don't know. You know Five thousand US. What? What's this like? Some fucking chopper money, bro? That you want me to pay you? It just, it just. But you said I'm saying, bro. Like it just, and then you just no longer have any industry. <laughs> so you just have a bunch of guys with some IG pages and some fake fucking YouTube comments. You see, what I'm saying, or dropping music like every twenty four hours. Like trying to feel good about themselves. I didn't know how you do that. I didn't know how you buy fake views and fake followers and pretend like you're a star. It's the most amazing fucking psychological fucking mind fuck to me. Oh, anybody can sit down there and do that, bro. I'm a star, really? Yeah. But you bought the followers and you bought the, the trick. The trick with it is this. How I kind of see the industry is like this right now. When you guys were first coming out, there was no real metric to gauge what you were doing and how you're doing it all. Now, if I have an Instagram and last week it was me and three of my friends on the corner, were laughing and do whatsoever. And then this week now, for some reason I went viral or whatever I did. And now I have a hundred thousand followers to them, to somebody that just had three people on the corner. And now I have control of a hundred thousand people. In their mind, that success, you can't see past that because you've been, you've sold over 10 million records and all is why you could understand boss. 100,000 doesn't even bring you to the door, much less to the business, but it's, it's really relative to how they see it compared to how it really is. That's what I think Fair is point. the real disconnect. Fair point. Let me tell you what difference is. Mm-hmm. If I got 100,000 people back in there to buy the record or the 1 million to go platinum, they physically bought a record mm-hmm. and physically contributed, monetarily contributed. Your followers, with your 500,000 followers, mm-hmm. you drop an album and you can't stream more than 1,500 co- copies equivalent. You follow what I'm saying? So the For numbers sure. don't match up. So all of this, oh, I have all these followers, but they're not showing up. They're not on Spotify. They're not streaming your fucking record. Mm-hmm. So, 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 what is the point of it then? What are you trying to show me, Jeremy? You have to understand times have changed. You gauge the success differently because you gauge it to okay. But then, what are they actually contributing? Yeah. Because first of all, half of them are fake, or more than half, and the rest of them they're not supporting you anyway, bro. Except just leaving fucking stupid comments on your page, fire emojis, and some dumb shit, bro. Nobody, they're not signing up for Spotify. They're not streaming your shit. They're, so they're not. You're not getting point? back. Mm-hmm. Well, what is the point of like a billboard reggae chart? It's nonsensical. I keep seeing them put it in the paper every day. Oh, so-and-so is number eight on the billboard reggae chart with 300 copies. 
the fuck you care about 300 copies, bro? Are you crazy? How could you ever spend too much time and energy to do an album? Mm-hmm. Bro, to, to, to sell or scan equivalent of 300 copies, does anybody realize how insane this is? What is the point? There is no point of doing it that way. It's rubbish, bro. And people getting like their, you know what I'm saying? Oh, I'm this on the Billboard reggae chart. I'm number two. What the fuck are you talking about? With your thousand copies? Mm-hmm. It's stupid. We can just go to a party right here in Kingston and have 5,000 people. You can't even stream enough to show. So what kind of metric is it that you're really trying to show us, bro? Because that mm-hmm. cannot be a mark of success. And nobody can go into this industry and buy equipment and go through time and energy and link with so many people and do all your photo shoots and everything and your IG and all this crap, bro. Just to come out there and talk about, yeah, man, I streamed 1,200 copies. And that's like the number one record on a Billboard record chart. It's, it doesn't make any sense. It's just, it's madness, bro. It's totally mad, madness. You're playing a completely different game than what some of them might be playing. They're, again, it's, I have 20,000 people that I could possibly reach out to and they make me feel good. Remember, there was no thing that made you feel good before until now we have this instant gratification. Oh, I just put out something and 300 people liked it today. But what a lot of people don't realize, the same thing that you like is the same thing that mashes you up. 300 people liked it today. And then when 25 people like it tomorrow, you feel like you fell off. And that's the kind of game that's being played out right now is, is it's, it's for the likes. It's for the admiration. It's not really for the it's for the fame it's not really for the money it's the fame the drug of that fame and attention that's what it is right now well this is the part where you're going to get a constant disconnect though because eventually if you can't make money doing it it won't make no sense Mm -hmm. to do it you understand what i'm saying and and you're going to put in all of this investment i'm here doing an interview with you we went through so much trouble to get this technically correct you're set up the stuff that you're doing. You have to invest in sound equipment, computers, cameras, all this type of stuff, lighting, to be able to have a YouTube channel to interview people because you give a shit about the industry and the music. And you want your channel to have followers and you want views. And YouTube becomes a business for you. You, you understand what I'm saying? I'm not telling that you're you're millionaire off it or not like that, but it becomes, it's a revenue earning platform. For sure. Right and so, and friends of mine who I know who do like like big up the fix like Naro and Aria and Javi, oh, them. I love their platform. I've been on it many times and I chat to Naro all the while. And it reached a certain point where I said to Naro, you recently, you understand now that you are not part of the industry. You are just a bunch of kids trying to run a channel and interview people. And now the amount of reach that you have on popularity, people look to your channel to be like, if I've made it, got an interview on the fix, I've made it. Mm-hmm. As an artist, like you have now become like a, a, a place where they want to reach to get that interview. So I said to him, you're in a funny position now because <laughs> now you have responsibility to the industry. Now, he also has responsibility to his people where he's partnering with to be able to earn money with the channel. Not just narrow, but anybody. <laughs> so then it becomes this thing about like, well, are we in a let's promote reggae music and interview people mode or are we in a clicks or views business or is it both because if it becomes both then the man that dresses up like a chicken and stand up on the fucking top of the building and tries to dj you're going to end up interviewing him mm-hmm. because you want the clicks on the views you understand and then people are now like some people are going to look at it like oh this is some um, entertainment it's wicked it's content yay we love it 
Other people are going to be like, yo, they're trying to say that Chicken Man is the fucking hottest thing in dancehall. What the hell is happening here? And then you throw the music on, on you understand me? Upside down. So you're, they're in this dichotomy now of which master do I serve? The clicks on views master? Or do I try and preserve the industry? And all I keep saying to them is that you're very careful because the more <coughs> the industry isn't served, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a death knell for all of us. <laughs> because when people don't care about reggae dancing anymore, nobody cares about your channel either. <laughs> you understand me? Nobody, all of it just goes away. So every year we'll keep seeing, I hear some fest, oh, let's roll out Beanie Man again. That's another concert with Bujo, another concert with Beris. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Let, let's you know, bounty killer. Let, let's bring back Lady Saw. Like, and it's like you're still relying on stars of the '90s mm-hmm. to keep this thing alive because you can't keep some fest with any of the artists in the last five years headlining the show. Internationally, nobody will give a shit. Sponsors won't fucking care. You see what I'm saying? These guys don't work with bands. The music is not like that. So, you, what are you doing? What is the industry that you're that that you're you're hoping to sustain. Mm-hmm. It's listen, Chella, it's far reaching, you know, I'm telling you, but very people make that decision. Everybody's so scared of Afrobeats because Afrobeats came out and said, Oh, we're making good songs that people can relate to. Mm-hmm. High quality production. You get what I'm saying? And so the world is like, yeah, we just love this stuff. Dance hall is balling, or oh, they're stealing our thing. Some of them are trying to be like, yeah, yeah, let's do Afrobeats too, because it's our thing and it's really it's not your fucking thing, bro. Afrobeats is Afrobeats. Dance hall is dance hall. It's not, it's not your, you try that with the reggaeton thing. Let's remember that. When reggaeton came out, everybody was like excited. Oh, well, it's the Dembo rhythm. Therefore, it's really, it's from our thing. And we should link with reggaeton artists and the songs with them. And everybody was trying to make reggaeton records and link with reggaeton artists. And after a while, I was like, bro, these people, the culture is not our culture. They even speak the same language. Yes, it's called reggaeton. Yes, I get it. It's a Dembo. We get all of that. But they have created their own thing. They don't need us. They, but it's like any invention. It's like you took, everybody took something from somewhere to create something else. Everything, the words you say, the way you play the beats, the instruments, everything took from somewhere to create this thing. Me personally, I think the only, if we're even going to call it an issue, let's just call it an issue, is I don't think dance hall has a identifiable sound right now. When you hear Afrobeats, you know that's Afrobeats. By n- you don't even know what the sounds are, but it has an identifiable sound. I don't think dancehall right now has that identifiable sound. That's what I think. I, I don't. Really I important. don't think so either. And, and and the issue is really that instead of us trying to focus on let's create identifiable sound, don't tell me about trap dancehall, whatever, because that's not that's not the identifiable sound which is working in any sort of manner. We've given it enough time now. We need to stop stop it now. I don't know how much more you need to give it. You know what I mean? What you got now? Where are we? You must have gone about seven years now with this sound. You get what I'm saying? And still not getting to the place where you needed to get to. Afrobeats comes along and then now you're all trying to copy this Afrobeats sound with this thing in your head about it comes from dancehall and you're welcoming and embracing this whole thing with Afrobeats and all that. Big up to all the artists who are doing what their thing is, but we are not Afrobeats. Mm-hmm. And you need to stop this, this thought process where we're African like them. No, you're not, bro. You're West Indian. You are not African like them, and you need to cut it out. You're a mixed race of people who mix with Indian, who mix with white, who mix with black, who mix with um, Middle Eastern, all kind of something would mix up Caribbean people. Mm. Your, your makeup is not African. It's predominantly African because you are black people. So genetically, yes, but not, not your experience and not your culture. 
Not your food and what you're eating. You know what I'm saying? Not the way that you dress, not your attitude towards certain things. It's not. Mm-hmm. It isn't. I learned that the hard way, like living in Montreal, thinking like I'm a DJ, I'm a good DJ at the African parties. And they're very like, bro, they don't consider us African hmm. at all. You're West Indians. Yeah. You're mixed, mixed race people. You're a whole different thing. It's a whole different thing. So musically, here comes Afrobeats and we want to kind of, oh, it's just like a whole thing. It's not. In as much as the black American experience is a different experience than the West Indian experience. Mm-hmm. How, how are we going to argue with that? Well, there are black people like us. Bro, they're not. It's not. No. But, but, but that's, just, not that's that. just surface level. That's very surface level. Okay, then after being black, what, what is your experience? Your experiences is what makes up who you are as an individual and as a culture. Right. Precisely. And on our experience, that is different from a guy from Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Hundred, you understand me? So you can't just mimic something at all. Yeah, man, I like that song. And then everybody in Jamaica is making Afrobeats records. Under the premise of what? Well, you know, we were slaves and we came from Africa anyway. Therefore, we're a black. Therefore, is our thing. And it kind of sound like, oh, it's just crazy. You see Afrobeats artists saying things like, yeah, well, dancehall is really African anyway. So fuck it. It's really, you know what I mean? And then the Jamaica's like, yo, how can you say something like that? And then you get this kind of weird space. And then you get Afrobeats kind of moving to this place of like, well, you guys don't have any big recognizable stars anymore in the space. We'll just create those stars now and kind of just piggyback on that kind of whole vibe or whatever dance I'll use to do to function in the space. We're going to make Afrobeats function in that space. Hmm. They're not there opening the door for the whole of Jamaica to walk into Afrobeats and start making Afrobeats records, bro. That's madness. So we can't focus on that. You can look at them and be like, okay, love what you're doing, like the sound, appreciate it. And there's a certain kindred thing about being people of color and having similar struggles in certain marketplaces, right? Like the experience in the UK or be able to get visas to go to places or just racism in general. Yes, I understand that we do have parallels that we can look at and that things that we can come together and agree on. But make no mistake about it, they are doing music business to make money Mm. as an industry. They're not doing it to just feel... Like, yo, you don't know, we know a day out with our friends and our feel good about each. No. And we are stuck in this place where everybody's trying to think that we want recognition. Yo, he's the first man for do this and we link with this man. And Stop the stoop, bro. It's nonsense, bro. It's a business. It's a, if without being a business, it fails, nobody cares. And nobody outside of Jamaica fails. And uh, it cares. And that's the problem. And if you're going to get on a plane and go and do a show, the more the music fails, people stop calling for the shows. That's all that happens. I'm going to like, book a dancehall artist. Why would we do that? No, the book an Afrobeats artist to the club. That's the hot music. Book a reggaeton artist. Then all of a sudden, you're no longer the plane. You have no show. So you're all sitting down here taking the little money which you have, buying fake views and fake comments, bro. You boil down the innocent to zero, bro. I don't care about the beat. Mm-hmm. Sheldon, I don't care about any of those things because we've been through it. There's no such thing as a 90s beat. First of all, not a misnomer, because I could play six, seven, eight different types of beats which are popular in the night. But we'll come fixated on one beat, like do, mm-hmm. do, cut, do, do, cut. Like this was the only beat. That's not mm-hmm. the case. Mm-hmm. So look so at look at the bug and all of those rhythms there. That those were bro, completely different rhythms. But as I'm saying, so it's it's a lot more than just trying to simplify it that way. Like, and I hear a lot of them now try to drop out songs like rehashing quote-unquote stereotypical 90s beat and saying, oh, this is what you guys said the problem is, it's the beat. It's a song. The song is a problem. 
Mm-hmm. This is why you're not recognizing the song is the problem. It's not the beat. Mm-hmm. And the more songs you're just making about chopping stupidness and females making songs about their body parts. And you know what I mean? Who cares, bro? It's stupid, bro. Nobody gives a shit. It's not working. There's suffering this wicked, wicked fucking death out there, bro. And it's terrible. There's it's terrible room for everybody. There's room for the slackness. There's room for the chopping. There's room for everything. But you have to put it in a pot and mix it up. Because look at John Paul. Boss off of a weed song in a bus. Give me the light isn't a thing there. Right. He was just happened to put it in a nice way where we could dance. And like, but that's a weed song. The man saying, yo, pass me the lighter so I could light my spliff. Right. So it's, and, and weed was highly illegal. So it's not uh, illegal. It's just what you're concentrating on solely could be a problem. Talk about chopping, a, talk about gal, talk about gun, talk about goodness, talk about political issues, talk about everything in one. And then you'll probably see a difference right there. Well, make a hit song. That's what I'm saying. I'm not, I'm not even, you know what I mean? Content is one part of it, but make a hit song. Mm-hmm. If content is part of the issue, if you said the Sean Paul example, it's like, oh, the content is about weed. weed. What people like weed will make a hit song about weed. No problem. Mm-hmm. If people can relate, you know what I'm saying? If anybody can relate to chopping or relate to whatever, and you can make the hit song, go and make the hit song. Mm-hmm. But you're not making a hit song. What you're trying to do is make hit videos, more visuals, spend more money, more guns, more this, more elaborate schemes, more color correction. Mm-hmm. You get what I'm saying? More drone shots. That's what they spend time doing. The, the visuals are, listen, the music video creation thing in dancehall. Wild. Go through the roof, bro. Wild. Go through the fucking roof, bro. It's crazy, <laughs> no, the level. You understand what I'm saying? The mm-hmm. level is ridiculous. And then you sit on there and listen to the song like, but there's no song here, bro. So like, where are you going to go with this? And it will boil down. People will lose interest because mm-hmm. internationally, they are going to say, it's not generating money for us. We are not wasting time on this music. We're not booking the shows. We're not signing any more artists. We're not pairing up with any more hip hop artists. We're not doing any of this thing. And that's a fair, you know what I'm saying? That, 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 uh, that, 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 that we face. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So that's what makes it difficult, bro. So let's try and find a way to, to make the hit wrong, the, the hit songs and make the focus. And I think all of us would feel very, very happy towards it. There may be some people of my gen generation who kind of feel like, nah, let's make it go back to the old thing. But I'm not, I'm not for that at all. No but let's make the hits. Exactly. Bro, when 50 Cent was the biggest gangster rapper in the world and got shot nine times, what was 50 Cent's hit record? You can find me in the club. He knows the difference, bro. They all know how to make a hit commercial record <laughs> and still make the hardcore records. You know, window sharper. They make those little silly records. Like by any gangster rapper stand up, like, what the fuck is this stupid little? They're like, nah, smart. Make the hit. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. When Drake wants to make a hit record, Drake knows how to do it. Some little silly left foot slide, right foot slide, like some shit like that, bro. Hit. Catchy. Mm-hmm. Catchy, monster, 300 million streams, whatever it is. You know what I'm saying? Like, create, but, and they can still be gangsters when they want or be hardcore when they want or make those kind of records when they want. You know what I'm saying? But why Jamaica can't figure this out? Why can't you make a commercial record to give it a success and still make your core records on top of what you're chopping and you did sign your data and, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's, just, well, I, it's just, it's just, it's just, I don't things. know where it ends yeah. up. It's one of those things I just said, so. Listen, I got, I actually have a hundred more questions for you, but I'm going to ask you one last question and get you out of here for now, because this conversation has been an epic, crazy conversation. See it from your eyes your, and how candid and open you are 
amazing. So right now, I'm actually inviting you back to the platform before we even finish. Yeah, man, no problem. Anytime. Yeah, I mean, all right. Last one anytime. here. A couple of weeks ago, um, we had a passing in the musical fraternity, Arif Cooper. I know you've right. done work with him. You mentioned him earlier on in the when we're speaking to. Is there any one memory that sticks out in particular about Arif Cooper that you'll never forget? That you cherish that moment with Arif? Well, there's a lot of moments with Arif. You know, I don't know if I could think of any one specific moment um, with Arif. To be very honest with you, mm-hmm. I think I think what is fair to say is that. I mean, Arif came from a world where his father was a founding member of Third World, Ibo Kupo. So he came raised in a world where his father is one of the, 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 the foundation members of like establishing like reggae, reggae music, not dancehall music, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And Arif managed to translate that from that world and bring himself into this modern dancehall world and be able to make a mark as a selector, as a radio show host as a music producer and was able to bridge a gap, I think, in, in his thinking generationally, right? Uh, from the two styles of music. I think everybody sort of realized that it is possible to see a connection between coming from a reggae was coming from a leading into the dance hall. When you had people like Arif who are in that position to have been grown in one and steeped in one and then also contribute tremendously to the other part of the genre um i think and arif also taught a love for hip-hop music as well too as well and he had a, a you know a really good record collection when i first met him and he was really into hip-hop and he appreciated a lot of part of the culture mm-hmm. i think arif found himself in a place where it is difficult like he was a very intuitive musician and producer and a very bright individual and not con- cut from the cloth of like the sort of more standard fair um, dancehall or, or radio disc jockey. And I think he may have found himself to be in a sort of uncomfortable position where he didn't want to act like he was professing to know more than most, but he did. Mm. You understand what I'm saying? But he mm. really did. And so I think Arif in many respects kind of, Maybe kind of got the short end of the stick in terms of that. I'm not really getting a lot of recognition from the fact that here was a guy that was really above average when it came to DJing and music production and being an actual musician, musician, or some musician, you know, play keyboard, like understand music theory, like a proper, you know what I'm saying? Not it's like a guy spinning records, like, and that type of thing. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and I think he may have suffered from the fact that there is so little outlet or appreciation for people like him that was blessed to have the ability to, 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 to transcend both parts of the industry, like being a real musician with a famous father growing up amongst guys that did actual reggae reggae, but being at, being at the forefront of dancehall as well. And the amount of careers Arif was involved with, Cartel's career and Sean Paul's career. I mean, he DJ with Sean on the road. He was amongst us all the time. The same stories I tell you about the studio and us playing the video games and stuff. Arif was right there too with okay. us. You know what I'm saying? And syndicate, um, fraternity and the sound system so i think he was very underappreciated um i remember being somewhere once and uh, um it was a a guy that was in the media and was having a conversation and he started to say this thing about dancehall producers aren't real musicians 
And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, man, dancehall producers, they're not real musicians, bro. Those guys don't know how to program drum machines, and they're not real musicians. Name me who, who is a real musician in dancehall. Mm-hmm. The first name came to my head was Arif. Mm-hmm. I said to him, Arif Cooper. He's like, what do you mean? That's what you mean, what I mean. Arif Cooper. Real, what do you mean, real musician? I'm like, yes, bro. Musicians sit down, play keyboards, understand key, music theory, can play two hands, proper musician. Mm-hmm. Better musician than I ever was. You know what I'm saying? I think that there's an underappreciation for somebody like Arif and the talents which he really had, which he brought um, to the game and to the genre. Um, gone way too young. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Obviously, and, and, and leaving behind kids. And it was a very sad scene overall. And, and also, perhaps, a comment to, and to the, the kind of the grind and hustle that somebody like Arif was trying to put in to stay in music and to stay relevant and to be out there DJing and driving up and down at nighttime and playing parties and still hammering it out and trying to produce and trying to do that type of stuff and the, the, the breakneck pace mm-hmm. of which you know what I mean you can get involved with this industry and as we age and get older and we're not paying attention to our health and the, the toll that it takes on your bro physically emotionally mentally mm-hmm. the toll sometimes a lot of people have to disengage from this industry mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying and take a step back and 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 because it, it's a harrowing harrowing experience you know what I'm saying? To try and keep it there. And unfortunately, you know what I'm saying? It, it just got the better Arif in the long run. Um, he sadly missed. And as a fraternity, we miss him. And more importantly, as that same fraternity of us, as that uptown movement then, as we spoke about earlier. Mm-hmm. I mean, Arif is an integral part of that family. And I don't, I don't think the wider dancehall world, I don't think I never really truly appreciate that kind of contribution he made to so many people at that point in time, whether as a producer, as a syndicate disc jockey, as a musician himself in the studio. I mean, you know, affecting what was going on with, with the people around him and the kind of influence he had. Then later on the radio and playing stuff, you know what I'm saying? And being a radio show disc jockey and a host and what you would bring. So, I mean, rest in peace, Arif, man. It's, 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 you know what I'm saying? A very sad scenario, but I think his, his contribution will 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 never go unnoticed and for that I'm happy. For sure. You know what I mean? I knew if anybody when when I was putting together questions and stuff, I said I knew if anybody would have some insights and a better and have something to say, it would definitely be something like Mr. Harden. Thanks hmm. much, man. I mean Mr. Harden, this is the end of I'm gonna call this the first chapter of you <laughs> coming to the entertainment report podcast. Cause again, if people see what you had sent me and I've never seen a, I asked you for an EPK and you sent me, Oh, I'll send you a CV. I had to turn to my wife and ask my wife, cause she's corporate and stuff. I said, what's right. a CV in my world. I know about an EPK. <laughs> and when I looked at it, I see all of it. I said, Brad, this is, I don't know how I'm going to put this together, but we're going to try a thing. And today we we put it together, a little piece of it, and there's so much more to go. But thank you for sitting down and sharing your journey thus far up to where we got so right. far. I appreciate it, man. It's it's, yeah. it's it's just fun. It's good to share knowledge. And I like yeah. to, you know, I mean, a lot of this information too, it's is good to kind of get out there in, in some kind of medium and, and have it there. Even in an archival sense, I think it's extremely important. You know what I'm saying? So if I can share, you can record, you host it, and it's on your platform, it exists and it's mm-hmm. in a kind of a finite form where we can always refer to it, man. We really appreciate that, John, your efforts, everything that you've been doing. Thank you so much. Leave some leave some contact or some social media 
info so they could check out what you're doing or anything, right? Here, the floor is yours. Um, yeah, just at Mr. Harding. Um, just spell it out: M I S T E R H A R D I N G. At Mr. Harding on Instagram, on Twitter. Um, I, I think on Facebook, I'm just Jeremy Harding. I'm not a big social media like person, like using it. I mean, I'll use it occasionally. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not like super, super duper big on it. But yeah, man, if anybody can hit a follower or whatsoever, we're we appreciated same way. And you know what I mean? I do, I do check socials daily and use it and, and stuff like that. But you know what I mean? As I said, you know, we're just doing our thing. Life is different now. We're older. We have different responsibilities and we try to encourage everybody who's in the industry to just make sure that we have an industry, bro. I think that's what we just want to leave it with at the end of the day. No matter yeah. what it, what form it kind of takes, I think we'd all just be happy to say that we still have an industry. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. just always trying to encourage everybody to kind of keep keep that in mind moving forward, whatever whatever they're doing in the music. You understand? Make sure that we just can have an industry to, to keep this conversation going. For sure. I respect that 100%. Let me give you an outro and get you out there. Cause this conversation, epic. All right, boss? <laughs> Thanks, bro. Um, well, respect. ladies and gentlemen, thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is Muscle, and this has been another Two Line Music Huts Entertainment Report podcast, and we are out for now. Just for now. Just for now. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by www.twolinedmusichut.com.